Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Let's go. Ready? From the top. My favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears, no tigers in 50 years. Rising all right, you know what that song means. It means we're doing another show in the kind of ask or tell me anything category. No guests, just phone calls. We actually have some phone calls coming in right now at 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. If you're not into the alphanumeric thing, you're just into the numeric thing. Uh, anyway, uh, those, that's the number. And before we go to the phones here, I do want to talk about a story that kind of broke this morning. Uh, and I think The Verge broke, but it broke it, but I'm not really sure. So Facebook is planning to change its company name next week. Uh, and I mean, I think it'll be a little bit like Google changing into Alphabet in the sense that I think people still say Google, you know, and people will still say Facebook. Um but it's allegedly – well, first of all, I mean, obviously, Facebook has some problems right now. Uh, one of the problems is that it's losing, uh, at apparently, you know, alarming to the company numbers, uh, the kind of teen audience that it depends on for Instagram. Uh, and it has allocated a bunch of money to try to figure out what to do about that. Uh, young people leaving Instagram and going to TikTok and others – they just have other options. You know, it's not quite the – um, horizontal monopoly that it used to be, whatever Instagram is. Um, now, allegedly, the other thing that they want to do, I mean, look, first of all, I should say, we're going to do a whole show about rebranding. And I think maybe we should do it sooner rather than later. We've been talking about it for a while. And there's going to be some rebranding of this show. There's like a plan here at this company to rebrand this show. For example, I think it's going to be called Mikhail's Navy uh, instead of the Colin, Colin McEnroe show. I mean, if we can get the rights. Uh, but, um, you know, there is a, seriously a plan to do some rebranding of this show. And I'm not 100 percent sure what that will involve. But I want to do a whole show about rebranding. And so with rebranding, you know, they, the, the stated purpose of Facebook rebranding would not be, well, we need to get away from all this bad publicity, uh, not just about Instagram, but uh, about all the ways in which Facebook itself uh, is under intense scrutiny. Uh, whistleblowers kind of coming out and sort of saying, look, you know, here's, here's all this stuff that they knew about but they ignored. Um, you know, there's also the goal of trying to send a different message to the public about what the company is. 
So Google doesn't want to just be a search engine, and Facebook doesn't just want to be whatever, um, whatever Facebook is. Uh, and obviously, Facebook is a bunch of other companies. Yes, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus. But they're also increasingly interested in selling things, including augmented reality glasses and stuff like that. What they're really interested in is what they call both inside and outside of the com- company. This isn't just some you know, sci-fi novel term anymore. They're, what they're very interested in becoming is the dominant company of the so-called metaverse. It's not really clear exactly what metaverse means, but it probably means, in the sense that it always has had, um, a way of living a digitally augmented or digitally different reality from, you know, just reality. <laughs> so it's it's like you would, in fact... If you were to subscribe to this and like buy goggles and glasses and stuff like that, you would be willingly saying, I would like to live in a, at least partially in a reality structured under the guiding hand of Mark Zuckerberg. And I would like to do that more than I like living in my current reality. How many people are really going to make that deal? Maybe a lot of people are. So, but anyway, it's fascinating to me. Uh, and and I mean, what they're talking about really is, I think, a pretty serious thing. I think it's a pretty serious thing that's not well understood and not at all spelled out. But I, I think what they're proposing is that rather than dialing back, you know, any of the practices that they've engaged in, which we feel has warped the woof of existing reality and caused untruths uh, and violent violent intentions to spread and allowed people who want to undermine the fabric of society to function and flourish and find one another and make alliances and circulate bad information. I don't think they're so worried about like that and kind of, you know, trying to see how much of that they can possibly exclude. Because we know from Francis Hauberg, the whistleblower, they don't really want to do that. Uh, but the question is, are they really sort of suggesting that they should be in charge of a different reality? It's bad enough that the reality we have now lacks any consensus. You know, people can run around saying the election was stolen when it wasn't. Um, but now we're talking about going someplace else and seeing things that aren't really there. Once again, as if we didn't have a big – just go on any anti-vax site right now and see if you need special glasses to encounter things that are substantial departures from reality. Uh, but anyway, keep an eye. Watch this company. Be careful. Uh, they don't – they mean us – they don't mean us in kindness. You know, their, their intentions are not entirely – I'm not suggesting that they mean us harm. But they are willing to do us harm while they pursue their other objectives. So this just isn't a fun – funny story about rebranding and what are they going to call themselves and let's all think of some funny names. I mean, I'm up for that. You know, that's fine. I'm up for, you know, wild and humorous speculation about what Facebook is going to call its uber self, its meta self. But that's not really the story. The story is they want to take us on a new journey. And based on how they ran the existing rides at their amusement park, unsafely, basically, and with wanton, reckless abandon and wanton disregard for the well-being of the people getting on those rides. I'm not particularly enthusiastic about kind of upping the ante and allowing them to create an even bigger, more outlandish, harder to govern, more detached from existing reality amusement park with more rides. Okay, that's all. That's all I have to say. Um, all right. 
Let's go to, okay, well, this is sort of on my list of things I want to talk about, so let's just do it. Uh, Here's Corey in Orange. Hi, Corey. Hey, Colin. How's it going this afternoon? Okay. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, I was just driving along, and one of the topics that you had brought up was uh, the Chappelle Netflix uh, saga, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was and it was just something that I wanted to touch on quick and kind of get your perspective on. Um, I just, without even talking about the right or wrongs of it, I just wanted to kind of touch more on the point of funny, not funny. Um, things that, I, I, I mean, the argument of what people are allowed to say or should say, especially stand-up comedians, is, you know, that's something that's going to be debated forever. Um, but I think the thing here... To note is that it seems that the guy's just kind of lost touch with his fan base, with the things um, that are the now. Uh, maybe he signed the contract with Netflix and they put out so many specials and so much time. Um, it, it just seems that the quality of the work has declined. Uh, and, and as a fan, it's it's tough to see. It's tough to say. But simply the way you know to open this latest special um, we're talking about is you know his money and what he has that that others don't and sure that's Chappelle's style and it always has been but it's old at this point um and i'm just curious as to again you know your opinion of it right and wrong left out of the left out of the conversation do you feel that perhaps he's lost touch with the audience that raised him to this sort of robin hood comedian stature well, based on everything, that's a really nice turn of phrase and a nice description of at least one of his kind of self-positionings. First of all, based on everything you've said so far, I think you and I could talk about this for a long time before we disagreed. Uh, I mean, I basically agree with everything that you just said, except maybe the idea that you can easily sever the question of right and wrong from the question of comedic quality, which is what you're asking me to do right now. And and, and I'll attempt to do it, but I I think it's hard. And, And I think one of the reasons it's hard. So Roxanne Gay, I don't always enjoy, but she wrote an interesting piece on Chappelle uh, this weekend in the New York Times uh, talking about sort of the standard defenses uh, of offensive comedy, you know, and first the main one basically being it's comedy. You know, it belongs in some special category of privileged speech. You know, if it's funny enough, you should be able to, you know, somebody like Chappelle, who is a trailblazer and who's in, incredibly smart, um, somebody like that should be allowed to speak his truth uh, with relatively few forms of interference. But I agree with you. First of all, w- one of the, you know, written or unwritten rules of comedy is if it's funny enough, you can get away with it. Um, And uh, I would agree that the current special, The Closer, is not funny enough. And and there are places where he's just weirdly dark in in a way that's not even remotely funny uh, and, and in a way that raises more questions about what's going on inside him these days. I think the biggest failure of the current special is it's about him and it's about his past for the most part. It's about um, what he's done in the past, what he said in the past, how he feels right now about what people have said about what he said in the past. So at a certain point, this becomes, you know, a pretty circular perspective uh, on him and and not as much about, I mean, I, I like Chappelle when he's looking at the whole world and calling out 
the world for its own hypocrisies. I like him less when he's kind of playing defense in a very aggressive and offensive way. And, and I just thought the whole special was, A, too much about him, and B, too located in the past, not in the present, not in the future. And yeah, I would agree with you, not funny enough either. And there's, I mean, just as an example, there's this description. He tells an anecdote about getting into a fist fight in a bar with a lesbian, you know, and he doesn't have a punchline. His punchline is just this really weird, aggressive, violent description of what he had to do, which he he shares with a certain kind of smirking pleasure with the audience, some of whom are laughing and clapping about it. But he doesn't say anything funny about it. Uh, He just says it. Uh, And and yeah, I mean, there are, as Roxane Gay says, five or six really brilliant, funny moments uh, in in the special. Uh, And then there's just like a lot of weirdness. And 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 I, I, I guess, Corey, I also agree with you that we need to have that conversation first and then the second conversation, what, if anything, should Netflix do about this? You know, and in a way, Netflix isn't completely different in this manner from Facebook, right? These are kind of relatively new companies. Uh, they, they operate digitally. Uh, and in each case, although they're very different kinds of content hosters or content providers, you know, their basic strategy is we're going to put stuff out there without a lot of judgment, without a lot of caution, you know, and some of it you're going to like and some of it you're not going to like. And we'll have this kind of invisible hand that will sort that out. And ultimately, you know, everybody will watch Squid Game and a lot of people won't watch you know, I don't know, name some obscure virtuous indie film. Uh, and and so I think both of them kind of have the argument. If you listen to what Ted Sarandos has said a lot, a lot about the Chappelle thing, his argument is kind of that, you know. I mean, he's apologizing a little bit more and wishing he'd said things a little bit more artfully and stuff like that. But it's more, you know, we're not a referee. We just field teams you know, and then you decide how you think the game is being played. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, writ much larger, of course, that's Facebook's idea, too, that at least initially they felt as though they didn't have to officiate call balls and strikes, have rules, throw anybody out of the game. They didn't want to do stuff like that. But I, I don't know, Corey, I'm going to throw it back to you in about two seconds, but I, I feel as though ultimately, oh, I think he's just, I, I bored him so much he, he may have hung up. But um. I guess that's sort of how I feel about this, that for Chappelle, I think this thing is a failure. And it's, you know, it ends with this kind of self-congratulatory story about a trans person that he did have a good relationship with. You know, being Chappelle, he's careful not to make it totally about how benign and affirming he was of this person. In fact, he talks about the fact that she had a real interest in doing comedy and she was terrible at it, but then she was very funny when she wasn't in a very planned way doing comedy and and then she she took her own life and he set up a trust fund. I mean, basically in your comedy special that is sort of no holds barred and, you know, uh, what does he say? He says, I go hard in the paint. Well, if you're going to go hard in the paint – uh, against all kinds of people and have this kind of anarchic and, and maybe, as Corey says, Robin Hood persona, then you don't go on saying, and I said I'm a trust fund for this trans person's kid. I, you know, I mean, that's so self-serving and it's not funny and it's just an attempt to sanitize everything you've just done for 90 minutes. And and I, I found that, I don't know. I mean, look, it's it's not a new thing that Dave Chappelle's a really 
difficult person. <laughs> you know, it's not a new thing. I mean, you know, he, Hartford is now famous for Dave Chappelle just like refusing to have anything to do with the Hartford audience uh, when he played uh, in that infamous gig here. But, you know, it it I, I've been really trying to formulate a lot of my thinking, uh, not just about Chappelle today. And I've been trying to think if there's an overarching view that I can I can take, you know. I mean, in a way, so I was looking at this is, may seem detached in like a Chappelle-like direction, uh, a, a, like a Chappelle-like diversion. But um, I was looking at a post today from uh, on Facebook on a kind of anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-health, anti-everything uh, page of Facebook. A- and um, the person had said that she was going to stand in such and such a place on such and such a time on uh, two, ser- two days, which I think have already passed, to uh, protest what she called forced mandates as opposed to, of course, the voluntary mandates. I, I don't know. But I-, I was looking at the forced mandates and I thought, oh, you mean rules. <laughs> you don't like rules. You know, and nobody really loves rules, but you have to have some rules. If you don't have some rules, you know, you, you don't have a functioning society. And I think ultimately – you know, Facebook is going to have to le- – I mean, Netflix is going to have to learn this lesson about Chappelle. You know, he was given an awful lot of freedom, uh, an awful lot of creative freedom and a lot of room to operate. And he's a very smart guy and he's a very talented guy. But I don't think it, you wouldn't say – that's a strange way to set it up. I, I think an awful lot of people looking at that would say – would be comfortable saying he's kind of abused the amount of freedom that he has. You know, he's used that freedom to do some really, really brilliant and funny things, but he's also used that freedom to do some things that are kind of abusive and dark that seem to have no connection to comedy whatsoever and are not particularly helpful or interesting forms of social uh, commentary. Now, uh, dyed-in-the-wool Chappellian would say, well, that's him. That's exactly who he is. He does brilliant and very funny comedy, and then he does a lot of stuff that's sort of mean-spirited garbage, and there's just no way that you can sever the umbilical cord between those two things. Well, <laughs> I bet there is a way you can do that. Um, and one of the ways that content providers could do it, he's probably too big to rein in, you know. But I think in general, one of the things we could all learn about this is, no, you, you really don't want to create a situation where you can't stop somebody from doing stuff that really hurts other people. And when I say hurts other people, I mean I'm sympathetic to the trans community's argument that they are the objects of violence. They are the objects of discrimination, but also just increasingly the object of random violence uh, and attacks. And, and that Chappelle is kind of feeding that. You know, At a certain point, you need to, to say – to yourself, if you're Chappelle, okay, I have some stuff to say that's a l- little bit stuff that's weighing on my heart, you know, and, and, and some of it's pretty negative about this community. Well, how do you say it so that you're not creating more space for people to engage in acts of violence against what I think we all would agree is a pretty vulnerable community. I mean, they've gotten much more activists. They've gotten much better organized. They know how to tell their story now. They know how to tell their story from inside Netflix and outside Netflix. But, you know, you really have to ask yourself that question. And, and if he won't ask himself that questions, question, I mean, as I say, there's probably no way to rein him in. He's such a titan at this point. But if there is a way to rein him in, that's you really need to try to do that. You need to say, look, 
you've got stuff to say, and I understand that, and I understand you have an underlying point. I didn't expect to talk so long about this. <laughs> I understand you have an underlying point that this has something to do with whiteness versus blackness, that ultimately it's possible for the trans community to make a kind of progress in a compressed amount of time faster than communities of color typically have been able to do. What is taking the, taking them a century, you know, maybe you can do in an eye blink because even though you're kind of an underserved minority within the white community, um, that's still way better than being a person of color. I think that's part of his fundamental uh, argumentative sub subtext there. Uh, as Roxanne Gay pointed out, of course, there are black gay people and black trans people. You know, so I mean, if you're going to heap scorn and 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 create you know opportunities for for uh, abuse uh, of that community, you are going to hurt those people too. So anyway, that's what I have to say. Um, let's go to, well, as long as we're on this topic, let's stay on it for a minute or two. Here's Dave in Stafford Springs. Hi, Dave. Dave, are you there? It doesn't seem like he's there. Uh, all right. So we may in last, um, all right, let's go. Let's talk to Derek in Hartford. Hi, Derek. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? Just fine. Beautiful day. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Facebook, uh, interesting. Um, you know, I I am uh, an adver- I guess you could say an advertising professional. I work in brand communications, uh, director of public relations and social media um, for a firm here in Connecticut. And you know, I, the rebranding idea from Facebook is is one of these interesting things, right? And there's two things people need to know about this. One, no amount of rebranding or name changing will fix anything without a true overhaul of that experience. You know, it's like the old uh, saying, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. Um, So there, you know, there've been countless rebrands throughout time that have just failed miserably. So the bigger question is how will, how will Facebook reshape the experience to make it better for everyone? You know, getting rid of misinformation, hate speech, controversy, all that stuff. I'm not sure the new metaverse that they're talking about um, will will accomplish that, but who knows? But as someone who works in this industry, um, you know, we buy a lot of Facebook ads, which includes Instagram and their other platforms for all kinds of clients in all sorts of industries. Um, simply put, you know, reason being the eyeballs are there. Um, and, you know, make no mistake, um, I think the other thing, People need to understand is that Facebook is an advertising platform that's guised as social media where, okay, we're going to go look at people's pictures and have conversations, but they are masters of online advertising. So the more people online engaging with Facebook, the more they learn about you, what triggers you, what makes you happy, the better their advertising capabilities and targeting are going to be. So that that in turn makes them and their shareholders more money, which is important to remember. So I suppose the, the bigger question is going to be what, what will Facebook really do that one improves the experience for everyone and two still, you know, as a business uh, makes them money at the end of the day. Right. First of all, thank you for all of that. That was very articulate. And and I think you said a lot of things that are very true, Uh, particularly the part about the fact that it's really an advertising platform disguised as something else. But, you know, when you think about it that way, if, if I owned a company that puts electronic billboards up on the highway and I let somebody use my billboard to say, you know, before the end of the day, 
beat up a gay person or, you know, let's invade the U.S. Capitol again and this time let's really get Nancy Pelosi, you know, for good or something. I mean, you know, I would be called to account for that. You know, that's that's inflammatory speech that I'm essentially enabling. Uh, that's speech that probably isn't protected by the First Amendment uh, in the sense that it's a call to violence. Um, so one of the problems with Facebook is that it's really not fish nor fowl nor you know, nor virus. It's it, it's harder to regulate because, of course, it doesn't charge people for the most part. It doesn't charge people for the privilege of putting up inflammatory content or misleading content. That just kind of happens as part of the churn that you're you're kind of talking about. The churn that you're talking about, people creating a lot of content, people sharing a lot of information about themselves, people finding each other and bond bonding together around certain subjects. That's sort of all the big churn that's going on in, in Facebook. And it's apparently such an effective and interesting churn and a high-use churn that, yeah, advertising there is worth a lot. But I don't think in the because it's a less simple equation than me recklessly letting some bunch of you know violent jerks use my electronic billboards on the highway for what really should be prohibitable speech you know it's a much more complicated animal than that so we haven't really found a way to regulate it either through federal regulations or normative societal societal regulations right so what we've got really is a big stinky barroom full of drunks you know picking fights with other people and hauling you know weaker people out in the alley and beating them up and the liquor's bad and you know and, and makes and the food makes you sick and the owner of the bar saying, oh, well, I'm not really going to fix this. However, I'm going to have another bar up in the sky that's going to be even bigger, you know, and I'm going to have a special uh, escalator to take you up into the sky to my new bar, you know, and I'm leaving this bar behind. People can still go to it. Uh, and I'm not really changing the rules necessarily for my bar in the sky, but it's going to be really new and exciting. You're going to want to try it. <laughs> and at a certain point, I'm just thinking, yeah. Well, I mean, how do we manage to have, even as a society, some kind of say about what goes on in that bar, uh, what is done by that company? You know, they're they're harder to regulate even than a major polluter. So, so Derek, I don't know. I, I, I uh, you have the last word here. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think it's really interesting. I think, look, you know, without getting, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I do know that you know. Section 230, right, yep. you know, which basically is the federal law that protects um, companies like Facebook and other online service providers and users from liability for hosting, you know, content that we're talking about here, right, the hate speech and all that kind of stuff. So they, they sort of just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, you know, not our problem, we're sort of protected. So, you know, I don't really know what the answer is. I think, you know, certainly there are uh, you know, whether it's the artificial intelligence or the humans behind Facebook that are trying to, you know, combat um, hate speech and misinformation and all of the ugliness that happens in, within, you know, in social media, um, they've got their work cut out for them. So it'll be interesting to see what this, this, this new brand and this new metaverse shapes up to be, because you know, I think, you know, no pun intended, there's a lot of eyeballs on it. And, and, and we're all curious to see how it impacts um, not only society as a greater whole, but in the business of marketing and advertising, what are the impacts there? Will people just kind of 
yeah, I'm not interested in this and, and leave the platforms or will they, you know, further engage in it and it'll be better for everyone. Yeah. Well, I have to stop there. I have to go to a break. But thanks, Derek. Yes. The question is, will people vote with their eyeballs, to use to extend your metaphor? If they vote with their eyeballs and say, you know what? We've had enough of this crap. It's not good for anybody. We're going to find something better. We're going to find TikTok. That's so much better. <laughs> or will they vote the other way with their eyeballs? Okay, Mark, I'm coming with you. Anyway, we've got to take a break. We'll, come, we'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we are back. It's an Ask or Tell Me Anything show. The number is 888-720-WNPR. I seem unusually long-winded today. Sorry about that. 888-720-9677. But these things that we're talking about, I mean, it's been sort of Chappelle and Facebook so far. These are not easy things. These are not uncomplicated questions. They might seem uncomplicated, but they're not. Uh, All right. We'll go to the phones here. Uh, Well, let's go to Chris in Wethersfield. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm trying to uh, ask a question uh, and kind of pose a solution. Uh, Joe Lieberman has come out with a new book. I just heard a little bit about what it has. But basically, he has, uh, he's saying we need better leaders and we need better voters. And I agree with that. And so I asked myself, like, what is getting in the way of, of getting there? And first thing that comes to mind is the medium um, how we're trying to uh, present problem identification and solutions. You know, we have debates, and we saw how horridly that uh, uh, presidential debate went. Um, we have uh, social media, and we see the algorithms and how they, you know, present information. And then one little thing that's falling in the uh, background now is our newspapers. And, of course, they're, you know, how they get um, what's presented in, in them has to deal with uh, the ads. Now, my little simple um, thing that I want to present is I believe we need to get to elect better leaders and better voters, we need a structured presentation 
of problem reality. Um, to or- we, we need like a template to organize thinking. And, you know, it can be as simple as, uh, you know how they put in the, uh, the brackets in a newspaper when it comes down to March Madness? Offering people a template, you know, problem ID that you have, and uh, maybe the, the person who's, who's running, fill in, you know, a solution, their solution. <laughs> yeah, I look, I'm going to just interrupt you, Chris, in the interest of time. I think that's, you know, a very interesting idea. I don't think it's like the idea, but it's an interesting idea. Um, I, I Look, there's multiple problems here. And I should say, at the moment anyway, there's a plan that Joe Lieberman and I will have a conversation which will appear on this show on December 1st. Is it December 1st? Yeah. I mean, the last time Joe Lieberman and I had a conversation on the radio, which was quite some time ago. <laughs> it was like a national news story. It went so badly. It, was, it became a national news story. So um, so we'll see if that actually happens. But And, and I, I think he is, I mean, I think he's more part of the problem than he is part of the solution. Uh, and I could really talk quite at length about why that's the case. Uh, but I think all of the things that he prescribes uh, f- uh, against that he proscribes are things that he has done and, and he has done with relish. Um, and, and many of his prescriptions seem really intended only to be used in ways that would benefit him or his allies as opposed to the nation. And ultimately, not to sort of – I don't exempt the media. The media has done a lot of bad things. You know, I mean we're in the middle of this kind of big reevaluation of Colin Powell following his death and you know ways in which he was a good leader, ways in which he was a bad leader. But I mean the reality is – and Eric Baylor pointed this out today in his new, newsletter – the media was a bad leader, you know. I mean, particularly if we're going to talk about weapons of mass destruction, the ultimate decision in 2003 to invade Iraq based on essentially nothing. You know, the news media really did a bad job and the U.S. Senate did a really bad job. And a lot of people who who should have known better either didn't know better or they decided that it would be so politically inconvenient for them to know better that they pretended not to know better. Because it was, they just thought, you know, in the kind of post 9/11 delirium, they would take a big hit if they opposed going and shooting the day and bombing the daylights out of anybody, <laughs> even people who had nothing to do with 9/11. Um, so it's it, it's true that the media fails. It's true that our elected leaders fail. But I think also you get the media you deserve in some ways. I mean, one of the biggest changes in newspapers is not simply the gradual dissipation or the dispersal of its staff, uh, although that's obviously happening. You know, here in Connecticut, we've got Alton Capital in here just, you know, grinding the Hartford Current into the ground uh, and running a bare bones operation. And that's a problem. But I think the first big digital age problem to hit newspapers was not simply the kind of the competition and the erosion of ad base, the destruction of classified ads as a revenue base, all that stuff. Um, I think the first problem that hit newspapers was that as they went digital, you can measure clicks so easily, right? You can see what kind of article um, you should run if you want people to read it, which I I worked for the Hartford Current 
a very, very large at that time daily newspaper for 19 years. That's not how we ran it. We didn't, we didn't write stories based on how many people read that kind of story the last time we wrote one. Um, we didn't think that way. I mean, we didn't want to run, we didn't want to put out a newspaper that nobody read or cared about, but there were almost no metrics. It was almost, it was pretty amazing. Once I got into radio, which has always been very metric driven, I was astonished because really, you know, I mean, at the Hartford Current, I was one of, let's say, five columnists. The Hartford Current literally had no information for most, for the almost the entire time that I was there, about which columnist was more popular than the other columnists or anything like that. They just didn't have that kind of information. So newspapers tended to use as their poll stars slightly more elevated beacons of journalistic quality, of truth, of importance, of relevance. You know, not that they didn't. There have always been kind of tabloids that kind of you know went for the went for the sales off the rack. But newspapers that were de- broadsheet newspapers that were delivered to people's homes, for the most part, functioned in a different way. And, and when in fact they could now measure that, you know, th- that they should do t- four more Jennifer Dulos stories tomorrow because the five that they ran today were really popular, or probably the other way around. The three they ran today were really popular. We'll do four tomorrow, and then do five the next day, and do six the next day, until the clicks actually start to go down. You know, when that becomes how you make your decisions about what stories to do, and it's not the only way, but it became a very important way, and it became the case that newspapers tended to have people, you know, they're often called content directors and stuff instead of editors, and, and what that terminology, what the change in nomenclature really reflected was a change in the newspaper's interest, not totally away from, you know, from journalistic virtue, but slightly away or maybe significantly away from journalistic virtue and towards giving the people in the cheap seats what they wanted. Um, and that, in you know, to whatever extent Joe Lieberman has some kind of case against modern society in which he is not tremendously implicated. <laughs> that might be one of, the, one of the few examples I can think of. All right. We have to take another break here. We'll come back. All right, here we are. We are back, and it's Ask or Tell Me Anything. The number to call is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. And I want to thank a cat pastor, the very special cat pastor, uh, who's in there freezing (laughs) in the control room, which this is some kind of Navy experiment to see, like, how much— temperature stress your body can take. Um, and so she's inside a freezing control room, and she is our technical director, and she is also in the process of becoming a frozen food. Uh, and also getting very cold today, even though he says he never gets cold, is Jonathan McPants, who's up here to screen the calls for this show. Uh, so um, first of all, you know, enjoy the remainder of your lives uh, as you slowly lose body heat. Uh, but uh, also thanks for all the work. Uh, and yes, I'm taking your phone calls, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Um, 
All right. <laughs> I don't really know what this call is, but I will take it. Right, here's Tom in Waterbury. Hi, Tom. Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Just fine. So uh, the reason I called is uh, several issues, you know, reading of it between the New Yorker magazine and the Atlantic. There are just so many news stories that come up that are not covered on national or local news. It's unfortunate. But one book I've been reading recently, and you probably, you may already have read it and probably understood it a lot better than I do, is This is the Way They Tell Me the World Ends by Nicole Perlroth, a New York Times reporter. And she has gone into great depth about the, the, the flaws in virtually every software program in the computer systems that run everything through our country. Our electricity, our water supply, the waste supply, the traffic lights, the whole shebang is, is, is governed, as, as I'm, I know you know better than I do, is governed by computer systems. That, and thousands upon thousands, of, I guess I could say tens of thousands of people, work assiduously at finding the flaws in these programs and exploiting them, finding ways that they can be taken advantage of and selling those flaws, sometimes to good companies who want to buy them and sometimes to really evildoers. But we're all just so terribly vulnerable to all of this, I'm surprised that not a whole lot more attention is being paid to it. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, I'm, I'm flashing back to, um, it's quite a few years ago now, where, um, and this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but it's close enough. And no, I haven't read that book. And not only that, I didn't know about that book. But, um, you know, we are, in, there's an arms race happening out of our sight. Uh, and it, it, it has to do with, as you suggest, people trying to put up firewalls and other kinds of defenses against and, and figure out before the bad guys figure out um, what to do about this. And so there's bad guys uh, who and bad people who, who want to uh, do terrible things on the internet and with our entire digital system. Uh, and then there's another group of people trying to create ways to kind of check that. Um, and so a few years ago, um, the Pew Research people, they asked a whole bunch of kind of uh, thought leaders uh, and, and people who work in adjacent fields and stuff like that, what they thought was going to be the outcome that ultimately this is not so much. I mean, the stuff that you're talking about, I assume, also just includes, you know, being able to mess with our credit card systems and shut down, you know, power grids and stuff like that. And, and hence, that's the way the world ends. But even the ability to just sort of, you know, create m mediums of speech, media of speech, uh, that work and can't be gamed and abused and stuff like that. And anyway, they pulled a whole bunch of people and, and it was like 50-50. It was very close to 50-50. About 50% of the thought leaders said, oh, yes, we will be able to get an upper hand over the bad actors, you know, in, in, fairly sh in a fairly short window before they wreck everything. And then the other 50% saying, no, we're doomed. Uh, the, the bad actors are not only very creative, but it's just easier to, to sow chaos than it is to fix things. And so we're screwed. Um, but, it, it, you know, you're right. It's something we don't talk about that much. When, he, when you started out, I thought you were going to talk about a completely different book, when, the one that I read about today and I'm, I'm now fascinated by. Uh, and it's that one. Hold on. I have to look at it the other 
it's the history of, uh, uh, history of the last 30,000 years. It's by this guy, David Graeber, uh, who is a former Yale professor who's written a series of books like this and who has now died. But he and David Wengrow have written uh, a book called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, which I'm very, very intrigued by. Uh, I obviously can't have him as a guest on the show, but um, I'm going to bring it up with the producers and see what we could do with it. All right. I'm going to go just down the row here. We've got a bunch of people calling in. Let's talk to Jim in Southbury. Hi, Jim. Hi, Colin. Love the show. Hey, I was interested to hear your take on the UAP slash UFO report that came out from the federal government in June. It struck me as kind of funny that in seeing the reaction to it, like I saw Leon Panetta on TV saying like, the best he could come up with was like, well, you know, it could be China or Soviet Union you know, or Russia, rather. And, and it's sort of downplaying what seems to me this should be a huge story. I, I, I kind of feel like there's a lack of scientific and media curiosity about it. And I'm not implying anything nefarious, but it's like these are extraordinary images, infrared. And we are seeing things defying physics, sink into the ocean. What do you think? How do you think we can get to a better place of understanding with this and just curious to know your reaction to the whole thing. Yeah, this is something that comes up like almost every time we do a show like this one. And it's also something we've covered a lot on the show. Uh, in fact, our new senior producer, Lily Tyson, and I think produced our last really comprehensive show about UFOs that I think built on some of the stuff that you're talking about. <sighs> I, I don't. I wish I had like some really terrifically smart answer to this. I mean, it's, it's weird because we were talking on Monday, I think, about... I'd like to do a show at some point about Occam's Razor. Occam's Razor, you know, dates back to the 14th century. It's kind of an article of philosophy that basically says don't make up new stuff. Uh, yes, and I can quote Occam's Razor in Latin if I have to, but um, don't don't make up new stuff to explain something when, in fact, there are explanations which exist already to explain it. Um, and so that's kind of maybe what's being invoked. I don't know what Leah and Panetta knows and what he doesn't know. But for some of the people who you know are, don't want to go straight to space aliens, um, you know, there's a little bit of that. Like, don't let's not invent some space alien because there's a lot of questions. If it's space aliens, there's a lot of questions. Like, how did they get here, and and why are they just doing this kind of stuff, but not actually contacting us and uh, I mean, there's some you know fairly reasonable questions that you could ask about all that. Um, you know, the likelihood I would say still is that it's something here on this earth. You know, it's something that's behaving yes in a very unusual and difficult to explain way. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean that's why the term that's you know UFOs have rebranded. <laughs> what are they now? That we, I always forget they're UA something right. I forget what they are. But um, um, anyway, um, I, I, there's there's a, a lot more that I could say about it. But it, it does seem anyway that to go right to space aliens jumps over a lot of other reasonable scientific inquiry. Because, you know, think about it if we did other stuff like that. You know, where did where did the coronavirus come from? Space aliens. Well, maybe we should find out if there's some more reasonable explanation about where the coronavirus came from. Uh, and I would add to that that this the, – the latest report, the one that you're talking about from, Ju the, from June, came out in the middle of a pandemic. I actually think the smartest take about that is uh, the comedian Nate Bargatze who in his most recent Netflix comedy special – which is considerably tamer and nicer than Dave Chappelle's, uh, 
he says, you know, the kind of year that it's been, he said, you know, they find out that there really are UFOs and nobody cared. He said, I, I told my wife, I called my wife up that day, that r- report came out, and I said, UFOs are real. And she just went about her day. <laughs> and there's a way in which we're just so overloaded right now. Uh, if that report had come out at a different time, a more boring time, let's see a time before 2016. Uh, I think we'd be having different kinds of conversations. Um, but anyway, I, I don't think I've really added very much to anybody's you know, understanding or thinking about this. So, yeah, we have time. We can do one more call. Let's talk to Alex. Hi, Alex. You're going to have the last word today. How you doing, Colin? Um, I really appreciate all the reporting you do. Um, you have a wonderful show. I just wanted to call in and say um, I think that there's a lot of talk on the left and, you know, the center of the political spectrum about why the center has collapsed and the center right has collapsed. And I think part of it has to do with institutions like NPR not offering reasonable conservatism, whether that be social conservatism or fiscal conservatism, um, a voice in its platforms. And I think institutions that are meant to be representative of the public then lose the trust of the public. Um, and I know, you know, I'm, a, I'm an active listener, and I would love to hear, you know, those reasonable conservative takes that, that we just that, – that are kind of absent in the modern political um, – Arena, and I don't want to hear them from sick fronts and talks and stuff like that. I want to hear them from smart people, um, and I wish you guys would bring more of them on. I think that's fair, um, and I, I will say that, for example, we occasionally reach out to Ross Douthat, who I think probably falls into the category you're describing, and we've had a hard time getting him, even though he's from Connecticut, and I think he's moved back to Connecticut. Uh, Ross, if you're listening right now, I would like to have you on the show and we would just talk. I think the other problem, Alex, is that right now I, I was on my list of things to talk about today because there's a really interesting piece uh, in uh, an Arizona publication, AZ Central Online, uh, by a Tucson Republican lawyer named Robert Gonzalez, who is sort of the latest in a long line of pieces that we're, we're seeing. Uh, where he just said, look, I wrote a piece last February asking people not to abandon the Republican Party. But now I'm leaving the Republican Party because it's gotten too weird. And the the extremes are too extreme. And and the extremes are being embraced by people who are nominally leaders of the party. And they won't reject, you know, weird anti-mask and anti-vaccine stuff. They won't reject the violence of January 6th. They won't reject President Trump's claim uh, that the election was stolen when there's no basis for it. And and so what you now have in the Republican Party is a bunch of people who are countenancing and enabling a real toxic political culture. And then a smaller group of people are saying, I can't handle that anymore. And I'm either going to have to leave the party or, or do something else. We're seeing it here in Connecticut, in West Hartford, where a gr- group of Republicans have left and have reanimated Lowell Weicker's old A Connecticut Party party uh, and are running uh, as that party because they – they're doing that thing. And in a way, it kind of makes it harder to do the thing that you're saying, although I totally respect what you're saying, and I think it's not wrong. But right now, the conversation is that one. You know, are you going to put Kevin McCarthy on, you know, and let him say stuff that you know is not true and then argue with about him about it, which is they kind of do that on Morning Edition? Or are you going to put somebody on who has basically said, I have to back away from this party? Uh, Anyway, I have to stop here. um, But thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with me. Uh, We will have more shows this week and they will be good, I hope. The number you have reached has been disconnected.